Welcome back to the HR Happy Hour Show with Steve and Trish. Trish, if you could suddenly become fluent in another language of your choosing, which language would you choose and why? I think I would choose Mandarin because of all the times that I have been to China and I love going there and traveling there. I, you know, I just, it, it feels like such a difficult language for us to learn. Um, you know, I took Spanish in school, but yeah, I would love to learn Mandarin. I would love to be able to, to speak even just a little bit. I, I can say a few sentences, but nothing, nothing monumental. How about you? That's a tough so question. So you, you, you did steal my answer. I would have chosen oh, that. I so I had, so for many of the same reasons, right? We've gotten to go right. over there a few times, hope to get back there, maybe even next year. We'll see. And so I would probably say that my backup answer though, for a different reason is German for a couple of reasons oh, okay. that's sort of some of my heritage is German. And also I like German soccer. And finally, the best thing about German is they've got these like 38 letter long words that mean very specific things. Like there's a single word in German that's like a 29 letters and it means like a company that provides shipping insurance, maritime <laughs> shipping insurance. And that's a word. Whereas that, that, that requires like nine words in English to make a sentence to describe that. I said, I'd be oh cool goodness. to know some of that. Anyway. I agree. I agree. Well, that's uh, good. You know what? Any language is good. The one also, I've been to uh, France before and it's always frustrating that I can, I know just a little bit and, you know, it's like anywhere, right? If you travel, you, you would love to know the language enough to at least have, you know, small conversations without having to try and I, I, Google translate me, it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste our time on this show with my, <laughs> my story about France, but We'll do a work okay. break show maybe later today uh, and uh, at, we'll have to talk about this again because I have a funny story about that. So cool. We have a good show today, Trish. Good, solid topic right in your wheelhouse for sure. I know. Compensation, pay equity, what's happening in the world of compensation, uh, the effects of COVID on compensation, work from home, lots of compensation issues. So we're going to get into all of that shortly. Uh, but first, Trish, we should thank our sponsors, uh, Work Human and, and Paychecks. We should absolutely. Work Human uh, is one of our sponsors. The world is watching the leaders of today and tomorrow. And modern employees want a workplace where they're respected, seen, appreciated, and heard, and they're demanding it. And employees have the right to a human workplace. So you have the power to create one. And thriving organizations like Cisco, Merck, LinkedIn, they've already realized the immense benefits of putting the human at the center of work. And you can get your copy of the book, Making Work Human, on Amazon and discover how. And we do have uh, podcast episodes with uh, actually several of them with Work Human. And we use the Mood Tracker, right? They're free resource to track your mood um, each and every day, which I think we've kind of determined, you know, it started out maybe thinking that that was something a little more for the organization to see how people are feeling. Mm -hmm. But I think as you and I have experienced from being users of, of that free solution, it's really also nice to get in tune with your own feelings of the day. So yeah, we encourage people to check out Mood Tracker. Awesome. So thank you, Work Human. Uh, we're also sponsored today by Paychex, one of the leading providers of HR, payroll, retirement, and insurance solutions for businesses of all sizes. While 2020 has challenged HR leaders like never, never before, they continue to play an important strategic role in their organizations while also fueling efficiency, building culture, and developing teams using the best and latest technology and tools available. The fourth annual 2020 Paychex Pulse of HR survey provides an in-depth look at how HR professionals are contributing to the success of the companies they serve. 
Go to paychecks.com slash pulse2020 today to download your copy of the 2020 Paychecks Pulse of HR Survey Report and learn how your peers are transforming the HR function within their organizations from improving employee engagement to involving company perks and more. Many thanks to our friends at Paychecks. I wear my Paychecks hat, Trish, almost every day. So we're talking compensation and no better it. way, no better person to talk about it from no better organization than kind of the, that one of the iconic names in the history of HR tech and compensation, salary.com, which by the way, it's going to be the best name ever for a company. It really is. Just because it's, <laughs> it's synonymous with the, 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 what we're talking about. And, and it just, it's just, man, what a domain too, salary.com. You probably had to grab that a long time ago. Our guest today is Kent Plunkett. He's the CEO of Salary.com. He is a serial entrepreneur with deep experience in starting and growing companies. Kent is thrilled to be back at the helm of the company he founded in 1999. That's how you can get a great domain, I guess. During his 11-year tenure as its chairman and CEO, Salary.com grew from startup to a successful initial public offering in 2007, was acquired by Conexa in 2010, and subsequently by IBM. Before acquiring the company back in January 2016, Kent was the CEO of Intronis, another SaaS-leading company. Kent, welcome to the HR Happy Hour Show. How are you? Uh, great. Thank you for having me today. You guys I didn't, it's the- great to have you. I, I didn't think of this until I just read the bio. Kent, is that how it worked? You just were 1999. You were able to get a great domain like salary.com that was just there for the taking? <laughs> We bought the domain for $75,000. Wow. So, All right. So, uh, so it'd go for a lot more now. That's for sure. I was going <laughs> to say, I say, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I think that alone would get you a bunch, but well, thanks for coming on the show. I have to tell you, I mean, reading that, you know, you started in 1999. I, I probably was one of the first users, I think, of salary.com. I remember I'm a big compensation geek. I was working at PwC at the time and I was always the person designing the compensation strategies and people would come to me and want to understand comp ratios and where they were in the market. And you literally were, and, and pretty much still are like the source, right? So obviously your data has grown over the years, but I guess just a thank you from all the HR pros out there who have, uh, who've ever had to describe how compensation works to someone who maybe wasn't uh, schooled in that. So Great, great business. Thank you, Trish. Compensation was always really kind of locked up in an ivory tower. You either had to write a big check or <laughs> know somebody <laughs> to get any information that was credible. And, you know, we were the first company really to open up access to compensation data to broader, not only, you know, HR generalists who didn't have access to it inside their own companies or line managers, but also even to employees. And uh, one of the l- dirty little secrets of uh, salary.com's history is most people come to our site don't go running to HR and say, oh, I need to get a raise. Most people say, oh, I'm fairly paid. And they go back to work happy. And I that's, love that. uh, that's, it's, a, it's been really satisfying for me to be part of this journey. Can I also, before I know we've got a bunch of things we want to hit with you today, just also kind of a big thank you for the job descriptions, because I've worked in many organizations where we don't have job descriptions that are always as current as they could be. And I know that's a, a big, you know, big part of what you all do. But even back in the day, that was also that was kind of the go to place for those as well, right, to see what, what your peers in the market were actually defining as skills or, or capabilities needed for certain roles. So again, a leader in that as well. So kudos to Thank you. you. So job descriptions are actually the key to understanding how much you should pay somebody. You actually Absolutely. go not to the job title, 
put the job description to look at the different responsibilities and the skills required for the position. And that's that as a result, we've been driving harder into the job description management area and built software now that makes it really easy for a company to manage and author and maintain their job description uh, catalog. So that's been uh, that's been a big focus for us as a company over the years as well, as you rightly observe. And this has been an incredibly challenging year for everyone, for every organization, for every person, right? Every employer, no doubt. We're recording this at the very beginning of December. Uh, hopefully we're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, uh, you know, in, in, as a society with vaccines coming on board soon or soon-ish. But uh, maybe we'll start with this, Kent, as you've worked with um, the organizations that you support and the HR leaders and the compensation leaders that work with salary.com uh, across, the, across the platform. What are some of the big things that have happened this year, specifically in 2020, in, in, related to compensation? And what are some of the things you've noticed uh, over the course of 2020? Sure. So in a recent survey of about 1,400 companies on their pay practices and what they've done, more than half reported that they did major layoffs of more than 10% of their workforce during, during the uh, COVID crisis. And that's just, you know, awful, right? right? That is, that's a massive upheaval and serious loss and pain felt by companies and, and frankly, their most important assets, their people. And so my heart goes out to anybody who was affected. And hopefully we in the HR tech world and the work tech world can make a big difference in helping people understand how to work through the recovery and how to find opportunity um, in the disruption that's, that's created, frankly, a lot of transformation. So one of the things we've seen is that, you know, most people didn't actually have to suffer pay reductions. That was relatively, relatively light. Um, <clears throat> but 61% had a salary freeze and, you know, an incredible amount of people, um, 45% of companies had 80% or more of their employees working from home. Okay. And 25%, wow. 25% closed all of their facilities. Wow. So that is just, you know, I know we, I know we hear about it in the papers and stuff, but to actually see the numbers was, was really stunning for me. Um, and I think our message is, and what we've seen is that companies are taking this moment to actually do a lot of HR transformation. And, you know, they're, they're trying to embrace the upheaval and embrace the loss and come back stronger than ever. And so a lot of people are doing a lot of work to redefining uh, how, what jobs look like and what work looks like. And that touches your job catalog, it touches compensation, it touches how you recruit and rehire. And it's a huge, huge opportunity to take this absolutely, no other word for it, crappy start to the decade and turn it into the decade of opportunity to fix some of the major problems that society has pointed out and that the government is also gonna be driving on hard to say, we need to fix the wage gender gap. We need to fix uh, inherent discrimination in the hiring and the distribution of opportunity among workers. And this is, our mission as HR professionals to make this decade be one that we exit in way better shape than we came into it. And I think that's the, that is the, that's the beauty in the moment um, is that to build on top of this loss and pain by so many others and come out great on the other side. Yeah, you mentioned some some really great examples there. And again, I think it's it's also unique that everyone is going through this at the same time, right? So we're all feeling a lot of those 
same pain points. And maybe before that wasn't the case whenever things would happen. So what are, what are some of the conversations that you're having with your customers around how to get through that, right? Because we're kind of at the end of the year, I was just talking with someone before this call about, you know, do we think people are just kind of frozen and not, not dealing with the reality in the business world? And I said, really, I feel like I'm talking to more and more people who are maybe even more pressed to make something happen positive in 2021. What are you hearing from your customers? I mean, obviously you've got a lot of data with them, but what are they doing? What are, the, what are you advising them? So I, I think that a big topic of conversation um, with our customers has been, you know, pay equity. How do I address pay equity? Because sure, I, you know, every vendor I'm talking to says, you have to communicate more, you have to train more. And, and that's actually true. Because in our, in, our, in our recent survey, 70% of firms say they pay fairly, but only 44% have a formal process for educating about pay equity. And 62% actually do have a compensation philosophy. So they have a comp philosophy. They're just not training to it and they're not communicating. So that will be one of the challenges. And that's, that's lots of HR folks are gonna be involved with doing more communication training on the topic. But the part most people don't talk about because it's hard is how do you do the math? And what does the math look like? Mm -hmm. And you know, there's kind of four, the government is actually takes a pretty creative role in this. Um, and it's, it's, it's always you know, guys, some, some bad words like affirmative action and EEOC form one reporting. But basically, I believe that we're gonna go back to what we did four or five years ago and the government's gonna say, everybody has to report on discrimination. And that means extending the form EEOC one back down to all companies that have more than 50 employees. I think that's coming under, under the Biden administration. Um, and that I think they can do without legislation. And there's also the opportunity then to do job comparability and say, how do I know, and this in California's past regulations around this, how do I know that this job over here is the same as this job over here? And then how do I know that I'm paying people fairly and with internal equity. And so one of the biggest questions that is, is how do I think about and define pay equity? And our definition of pay equity we give our clients is, look, as an HR professional, you need to make sure that what you're doing is um, <clears throat> that pay equity means that you are fairly distributing pay internally and you are competitive to your external, external labor markets, so your market pricing, and that you do so in an environment where there's equal opportunity for all to advance their career. And if you can do internal equity, external competitiveness, and opportunity for all, I think that's a, I think that's a framework that most people can embrace and, and get behind. Kent, that's super interesting because as you were describing how you guys try to describe it and advise your clients to approach it, I was thinking about, I worked on some compensation tools on the, on the product side for a while, a number of years ago. And one of our challenges, at least one of the challenges I had, I'll say personally, maybe it wasn't everyone's challenge, but it was one of mine was, how do I, um, how do I make that data? How do I control for things that I need to control for, right? And how do I, job descriptions is one that you talked about, right? How do I, how do I know these two jobs are really similar or similar enough? And then controlling for things like tenure and experience and, and things like that. Market, as you said, right? Like, and I know we're going to have a market discussion on compensation here in a couple of minutes too, but just so, so maybe if you could, Kent, maybe describe some of the ways that technology, salary.com or others can kind of help HR and compensation professionals kind of actually get to the right answer, right? Because it's not, that, it's not as simple as, 
okay, here's everybody's title. Here's everybody's job. Here's some characteristics about them. Here's what we're paying them. Let's figure it out. It's more complicated than that, I think. It, it is. And I, I think it starts with doing the hard work to organize the job descriptions in your company. And for something like 86% of the firms, they don't have a proper uh, maintenance process for maintaining and a commitment to maintaining their job catalog. Um, actually, Workday has made a really big impact in this because to deploy Workday at your company, you actually have to build a job catalog. And so they've actually forced it on the market and they've, they've grown that category a lot as a result and people are actually doing the right work. But if you organize your jobs, your job catalog properly, you can actually start to get to all kinds of internal equity and job comparability, you know, really quite easily. And then the pay just the pay levels just slot in against the job description. So I think that's actually the key and it seems to be happening and, and gathering force. Yeah. And I think at least from what I was doing back then, that was the missing piece, right? We just, we narrowly focused just on the comp data. I truly believe that's what we were doing and, and some of the demographic data around the employees as well and not thinking about how to make that reconcile, right? The, the job catalog. So I think yeah. that was part that we were missing. I think you have to do both. Yeah, I think sometimes, and we talked about this offline a little bit, there are sometimes um, you join an organization, there might be executives, uh, C-suite level, who don't really understand the compensation strategies and processes themselves. You know, they've, they've grown up in a little bit different side of the, of the business world. And when you come in as an HR professional understanding that, it's, it's a little bit tricky to, to maybe have them understand benchmarking and why the importance of accurate job descriptions. But I wanted to at least mention, I, I know on your website, you have a resource section so that for human resource professionals or really anyone, it could be a hiring manager, or whatever, who's looking into wanting to learn more about, you know, how to have those discussions and what they can start doing. Um, baby steps is what I would say. Cause I think that sometimes, you know, we get a little overwhelmed if we walk into a situation and we're like, Oh gosh, this is a mess. My job descriptions are a mess. Right. So you have to start sort of giving, um, the organization baby steps to get there. So I love the idea though, that, you know, that Workday has pushed that out. What are you, what are you hearing from some of your other customers though? Do they struggle with, with the job descriptions and, and needing you for that type of support then? I think they do. I think the biggest thing that they're feeling right now out there is that employees and line managers and even HR generalists who are outside of comp all have a lot more access to many alternatives for free data sources and lots of views, if you will, about how much somebody should be paid. And so today, Microsoft, LinkedIn, Indeed, Glassdoor, all major sources, not traditional HR or comp actors, but you know, big data people right. uh, coming at it by collecting data mostly from individuals about how much they self-report they pay, which is, you know, it's challenging on a data quality perspective, but it is gaining an acceptance and usage around the edges of where data is hard to get. Otherwise, then people will rely upon that. And HR is accepting it a little bit more today than they did the last few years. I think the action is that because there are sources of data out there, it opens the door for the conversation. And so HR and comp people being challenged like, why are you paying me as much? Be transparent about your data sources. How did you come up with this number? Why is this, why should I think this is fair for me? And that ties to very individual feelings, you know, self-esteem, ambition, um, family and friends have an, have an influence in this conversation, society, 
values around diversity and demands for pay equity. And increasingly, um, a new trend in the last 10 years has been this one where I actually care that you're paying uh, Susie down the hall fairly. I'm not, I'm not here complaining about me. I think Susie might be underpaid. And that is, that is a relatively new development. So there's, it's a more complex world. And I, I think that as a result, there's more pressure on HR and on comp to be transparent about where their data is coming from. And as they are transparent and then educating, I think they're gonna capture um, you know, the old guy in the corner office who has resisted paying attention to what the market is. Because that being said, there's still more work to do around training. And I, I think we will see a lot more communication and training in the next two years with all the pressure on DEI is also then going to flow to pay equity. I'm so glad you mentioned transparency too, because I think that, you know, I spent a good chunk, chunk of my first 10 years of my career in, you know, professional services. It was very transparent. We had conversations all the time. Here's your comp ratio. Here's why it is what it is. We're paying this role above or below the market for a very specific reason, for example, but then you go into other organizations, that's not the case at all. It's not even talked about. So I think you're right when you mentioned that you really do have to work toward pay transparency. And that's what sort of brings anyone who's not familiar with it along to see the benefit of that. Because I, I did feel like starting my career that way for the first 10 years, it really helped have all those conversations the next 10 years in HR. You know, but not everyone gets that. It's a great observation. So if you go back 20 years ago, um, as a company, the only people doing comp work were organizations with more than 500 employees. Right. Today, you know, we moved our, you know, we started seeing a lot more demand for compensation tools and data and actually people doing compensation work in businesses from like 100 to 500. And now we're seeing a lot of people calling us and saying, hey, you're not even talking to me, but I'm calling you because I have 40 employees and I need to do comp projects. I need I to do that. comp work. So the societal pressure and the, the actual prevalence of free data is creating kind of a, you know, the, the pressure right up, in, right up the company and right to us that says, look, we have to do this work. How do we do it right? How do we do it well? How do we get pay right? It's really important. We're with Ken Plunkett, the CEO of salary.com, compensation, we're deep dive conversations around compensation and compensation, uh, as you know, Ken, for sure has been in the news even more lately, probably than it normally is. Look, it's always important. And despite all the, the surveys of the last 20 years that talk about the things that are important to employees in the organization, we always blow off the fact that compensation fairness and, and pay, you know, pay is always number one, but we never want to talk about that. We want to talk about culture and perks and training. And those things are important too. Compensation is always number one, but yet we never want to really talk about it, which I find weird. But this is the why I wanted to talk about today in, in the light of, of what's happened in 2020 and so many organizations moving to work from home and many even now going to permanent work from home or indefinite work from home. The issue we've been reading a lot about, Ken, particularly in the technology industry, because they're sort of always in, in, at the forefront of a, lot of, of a lot of these HR trends is adjusting salaries for people who decide to exit, say, a high cost, uh, high cost of living place, like say the San Francisco Bay Area or New York City, or you pick whatever expensive city you want, and relocating to a lesser uh, cost area because the company has now said, hey, you're free to work from anywhere you want, you're, you're good. And some of the companies are diving in to say, well, wait a second, if you leave the Bay Area and go get a little farmette in Iowa, 
we're going to dock your, not docks, maybe not the right word. We're going to adjust your salary down by some factor. And other companies are not saying that. They're saying, go live wherever you want and your salary is your salary. Ken, I'd love for you to kind of share any thoughts you have on that. What have you heard? Have you heard anything from any of your customers and just maybe your, what you're seeing as someone who's been in the, in the compensation business for a long time about, about that issue? I, I find it super fascinating. Yeah, you, Steve, you definitely picked the bag of cats and dogs uh, to talk about here. That's a, it's a really sticky issue. A couple of things, a couple of observations. We are seeing a lot of companies that are saying, look, I'm not going to change your pay, but I'm not going to necessarily increase your pay as quickly because you've moved in your nine box, right? And, you know, you're now, your compa ratio says you're overpaid for where you live. So your opportunity to advance your pay might be decreased. I'm, I'm going to suggest to you, I think that's the most prevalent outcome okay. we're seeing out there. Um, we are seeing companies that are saying, I don't care where you live. Do whatever you want, right? And they want to be the employer of choice. And then there's folks that say, look, you're moving to Des Moines, Iowa. You know, I'm going to knock your pay down by 8 or 9%. Now, I don't see people, we haven't seen anybody, you know, getting their pay knocked by 25% or 30%, right? The, 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 the cost of living adjustments are not as big as you might think. And I think, I think what's going to win out over time is that companies are going to take the philosophy like, we're not going to decrease your pay um, because it's, they're going to make a personal decision. And part of that is because comp has become, it used to be comp was all about the job and just about the job. And anything about the person or the person's special skills they brought to the position didn't matter. That's evolved. And it's now more of a mix where individual compensable factors and skills do matter in pay. And I think work from home is going to benefit from basically that kind of adapting philosophy. So it's not just job and location or as a hardcore comp philosophy, but it is, it is stunning that right now it is totally mixed bag. You know, I, I would, I don't have data on this today, um, but I would, based on what I hear from our clients, I would say about 25% of the time people are getting Hey, you can go there, but we're gonna we're gonna knock you down. We we got to get you internal equity. We've got to take you down a few pegs. Um, and you know, I'd say seventy five percent of the time, it's the same or it's the same or better. The most important thing, though, is that as turnover happens, those people hired in role positions are not going to come in at the headquarters rate if the headquarters is in a more expensive place. So over time, the companies will win by attrition, and they will win because that's just how that. That's why they have comp workers is they're optimizing pay and they're fitting pay to the local market. Yeah. And, you know, so if you're transferring, you're probably going to be okay. If you're a new hire, um, you're probably not going to get the Silicon Valley rate. That I, makes sense. You know what, too, though, I think that um, in a lot of the organizations I worked, we didn't really pay cost of living necessarily. It was all about cost of labor, which gets to your point about more around the skills, the requirements of the job and whether or not we felt that those skills were so hard to come by. We, we, selected to pay above market for certain roles. So yeah, to me, I would hate to have to be the HR person or compensation person. They had to have those conversations with people telling them they were either, you know, reducing their pay or somehow freezing their increases or again, you could explain it, of course, with the data, but that, I don't know, you might lose out on, I don't know, some of the, the feel good aspect of it because people would look at that as a big hit if they had to take an even an eight or 9%. It's a punishment. I, I think the optics of it are horrible too. Mm-hmm. Just when you think sure. about, say, like maybe you're that that you know proverbial Silicon Valley area tech company, maybe a couple hundred workers, whatever, it doesn't matter. 
pretty expensive real estate, pretty expensive services, an office full of perks, right? Like we've seen, mm-hmm. right? With uh, all the free food and everything else, right? That's no, that sort of oh, all yeah. disappears, right? When we go to the everyone's working from home or largely disappears anyway. And then to kind of pile on top of that to say, well, yeah, all that great stuff we had here in the office, the non-monetary comp, if you will, or, or perks, uh, uh, we're also going to dock you seven or 8%. And honestly, some of these developers, right, these tech companies, they're making a lot of money. Seven, eight percent on a couple hundred thousand salaries, a nice piece of uh, a nice piece of money for sure. And so I don't know. It's not it's easy for me to say because I'm not making those decisions. Right. For, a, you know, thinking about this cost savings maybe associated with it and some of the other long term things, which I'm probably glossing over a little bit flippantly. I will admit to that. But that's been my just gut reaction to some of the stories I've read uh, about those uh, those kind of uh, geographical based adjustments, if you will. Because no one goes the other way, Ken. Maybe you have experience with this too. Like if the person decided, uh, hey, I'm going to move from Des Moines to the Bay Area. Only, only if the company pays. more money. Right? Only well, if I've had those money. many times. <laughs> Unfortunately, to some degree, the house always wins, right? <laughs> and so, you know, the, the war for talent only carries you so far. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Or I would have people who would want to move. They would come and request to move. I'm going to move to New York City. Oh, and now you're going to give me a big increase. I'm like, no, no, we're really not. <laughs> we're really actually not going to do that because you're worth what you're worth. So yeah, it's, it's, a, that's, a, you know what though, that gets to the whole idea though of having an actual compensation strategy so that you can have the conversation. It doesn't matter. Like whatever your stance is, is what it is, but at least be able to explain it to people so they can then make a choice. Right. Um, it's, it's the idea of not knowing, not having transparency and people will fill in the blanks with other ideas of how they think compensation is determined. And maybe it's completely off base, but by you not, you as the organization not saying something, um, I think you're, you're hurting yourself ultimately by not sharing and being transparent about how you come across. We, um, we find that the leaders yeah. that are willing to embrace the, what feels like a hard conversation the minute before mm-hmm. you start it and feels like a fantastic conversation 10 minutes later, um, if you can have a data-driven conversation with your employees and explain to them, this is what the market is, here's, here's you and the job that you're in, and this is how they come together, and this is why we think that how we pay you is fair. That is a really empowering and energizing discussion most of the time. And, yeah. and, you know, and that is a conversation that, frankly, people just don't want. They're just afraid to start it. And so... Yeah. You know, that communication is, you know, the other, the other C word in compensation, right? So it's, it's, it really is a, a second piece. And um, I think that's going to be super important over the next two or three years as people increasingly put voice to addressing concerns about pay equity for themselves and for others. Yeah, I think people too, employees, once you have that conversation with them, they feel good because at least they understand. And again, then the, the ball is back in their court. Whether they like it or not is a whole nother conversation, right? They can choose to stay, choose to go, whatever. At least they understand where the, where the uh, compensation comes from um, and what the strategy and the culture of the company kind of combine to create that. Um, the other thing I think, too, is it actually empowers the employees because I've had employees come to me saying, you know, I need a raise, which it'll be interesting to see. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. Like, do you think that after we're all now, you know, so many working from home are, are people still asking for raises? Um, because 
if, if someone can go on sour.com and find out, you know, they can look at the, at the graph and see where they fall. What if they are below, they could actually then come with an informed, you know, bit of data and have a good discussion with HR or their manager, you know, whoever the person might be, um, and really make a good business case because people that would come to me and say, I need a raise. And I'd say, what's your business case? And they would just look at you like, I have no idea. You know, I'd say, well, go research it. Come back to me with why should we pay you more? So we were stunned. I was, I was stunned um, that this year the data came in that the merit increase budgets for most companies remained intact at around 3%, which is, a, which is the recent historical law. Right. So there, there are going to be budgets for raises. And I was surprised. I thought they would, I thought they would, you know, we'd see a big downturn. A down click in that and it's mm-hmm. it doesn't appear like that's what's coming so um, we're we're kind of pleased and I, I think part of that is that you know this is an economy of winners and losers and the winning companies are actually feeling the same pressures that they felt and some of the winners are, are feeling hungry for talent and they're out looking aggressively in this market for talent and adding headcount while other people are you know shutting shutting their doors and it's I think the disruption is very difficult, um, but I have not seen I have not seen significant decreases. I mean, I haven't seen like we've seen little decreases, but not huge decreases in entry level pay, in you know you know mid level pay. Um, variable pay has been cut to the bone this year, but it'll come back next year if we have a good economy, and maybe even at year end if you know boards may say we've got you know, profits are coming in really well this year. So we think that variable pay for executives might actually end up being okay this year. Not great, but okay. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole lot better than zero, which is what they were looking at three, three or four months ago. So um, I, I would say this, the thing that's really got me encouraged about pay levels and people actually getting raises is that the U.S. government about two months ago came out and the Fed said, we are committing as an economic body to full employment over inflation. And that was like this incredible shift in, in policy that threw out 40 years of, you know, government economic policy that said, we're going to fight inflation. And now they're going to say, right. we're going to, we're going to, we're going to stimulate the economy and drive to full employment because the only way that we protect the economic well-being of our poorest people in the country is to be at, you know, three and a half, four, four and a half percent unemployment rates. That's when the that's when those people get the most lift and the most economic relief. And so that's going to be that's going to be the policy of the Fed. That is huge great news for companies, for HR, and frankly, I think for people in America, because by all by all indications, ever since the internet came out in 2000, inflation has been in check. And so we should be doing what we can with economic policy to create an environment of full employment. And that is only going to help people have more opportunities for career advancement, and it will help us spread that opportunity more broadly uh, across society. So I'm very excited about that government announcement that, frankly, didn't get a lot of play because it yeah, was can, buried can, under the presidential election. That is a great, great point, right. which is an important one. That pivot to say for, for decades, right, the Federal Reserve, the United States, it was inflation, right? That was their primary right. objective, right, is to maintain that, that stable level of inflation. And now for reasons that we don't have time to go into now, it's kind of 
the stable level of inflation just kind of happened over the last couple of decades, as you said. And honestly, before the pandemic, and I know we probably should wrap soon, but you know, I'm a labor market geek all the way. And right before the pandemic, right, we're 3.5% unemployment in the United States in February of 2020, literally the month before the pandemic set in, the lowest it's been in like 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. So it's been measuring more people working in America than ever before as well in February, right? So, and, and the ratio of uh, open jobs to unemployed people, right, was plus one. It was like 1.4, something like that. It was Crazy. really, really high, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I think it's quite likely based on a, a combination of factors, right? vaccines, pent up demand, right, which we, we know is happening right. out there. And uh, the way the government's philosophy is going to be around jobs that uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all by this, by, by say, ne- this time next year, we're approaching maybe not three and a half percent, but in the five-ish range, I, I think that's quite possible. And maybe even lower. I think you're right, Steve. Awesome. Ken, this yeah. has been so much fun. We're going to have to do another show and do la- like labor market today because I could do 45 minutes on this easy. Trish is <laughs> laughing at me. You know I could. You're a hot no, date. I love this You're a hot date, Steve. <laughs> I know. So much fun. <laughs> Such a bore. No, I love this too because, again, this gets to the core of what a lot of our listeners are looking for, right? This is the, the actual pain points they're having. This is how to take those steps to think about it for the coming year and how to plan and how to feel good about the decisions they're making around pay equity and inclusion and pay practices and just the whole thing, right? Like we, we always hear that, you know, HR doesn't feel strategic to me. Compensation is one of the biggest strategic moves you can make in your organization, make a huge impact. And it's on the bottom line. um, And, and not enough people understand it or spend time on it. So yeah, I'm so glad you came on and we yeah. would love to have you back. Yeah, please come back. And Arm yourself with data, more. right? Go to salary.com, <laughs> yes. access the information yes. that's there. I mean, that's it, right? Have the data, have the tools. Yeah, as you said, level up your compensation strategy. Absolutely. It's, it's nothing's more yeah. important, right? I don't think so. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be with us today from uh, salary.com, the best website, I think, in HR still, salary.com. I'm so jealous. Thank, thank you, Steve and Trish, for having me on the, uh, the, the, biggest, the biggest radio episode. Uh, on the, oh, on the it's going to be big, Kent. Really Very cool. big. So uh, thank <laughs> really you so cool much again. So, all right, great stuff. So again, Ken Plunkett, CEO of salary.com. Go there for all your compensation needs. Uh, Trish, we must thank Work Human and Paychecks one more time for all Absolutely. their support throughout this year. They've been great and great to us. So thanks uh, to them again. And uh, awesome. So Trish, uh, I guess we're out for you, for Trish McFarland, for our guest, Kent Plunkett. My name's Steve Bowes. Thank you so much for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show. We will see you next time and bye for now.